Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. Today's discussion is cryptocurrencies and blockchain and monoclonal antibodies for COVID. Our first speaker today is Chris Giancarlo. He is known as Crypto Dad in the Twitter universe. Chris is the former chairman of the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, and he is the regulator who approved Bitcoin futures. Chris thinks cryptocurrencies and blockchains will revolutionize payments and banking. Our second speaker is Dr. Ari Cement, who's a pulmonologist at Mount Sinai Hospital in Miami Beach. Ari has treated thousands of COVID patients since the March 2020 outbreak, including me. Today, Ari will explain the pros and cons of the leading monoclonal antibody treatments and how to choose between them if you become COVID positive. Omicron is incredibly contagious. The virus will spread uncontrollably and rapidly until we reach herd immunity. The current supply of monoclonal antibodies will be insufficient, and patients will have few choices. Ari is going to recommend a strategy for these medications based on your age, pre-existing conditions, and vaccination status. I'm going to ask Ari about which medications to bring on vacation if you choose to leave the U.S. during this COVID wave. On last week's podcast, Ari described what's happening in the hospitals for Omicron patients. Omicron quickly became the dominant variant in New York City and Miami and other urban enclaves. But the CDC announced this week that Delta is still the most common variant nationwide. Ari can predict which variant a patient has based on his symptoms. If you have sinusitis, a stuffy nose that changes your voice, then you probably have Omicron. If you feel fatigued and you feel like you've been run over by a truck, you've got Delta. The Omicron storm is coming and you need to have an action plan. All right. Let's begin today's session with Chris Giancarlo and learn about the revolution in crypto. Go ahead, Chris. A quarter century ago, the first wave of the internet was greeted in Washington by an official response that was enlightened and bipartisan. The White House and Congress came together to promote development of an internet of information unfettered by inapt federal and state law. This smart policy response was known as first do no harm. Today, a new wave of the internet is at hand, an internet of value. This internet wave is exploring financial assets and money in digitally native forms of cryptographically stored value based on public blockchain infrastructure. Bitcoin and a type of cryptocurrency pegged to the dollar called stablecoins are probably the most well-known results of this private sector exploration. Around the corner may be central bank digital money, including a digital dollar. Today, more than 200 million people worldwide and more than 60 million here in the U.S. are participating in this technological revolution, empowering creators, innovators, and developers while introducing needed competition to ever more concentrated financial markets. It has the potential to do to banking, payments, and money itself what the earlier internet wave did to information and communications and retail shopping, travel, and entertainment. And that is reduce cost and latency while increasing accessibility, inclusion, and economic freedom. Sadly, Washington's response to financial innovation this time around is a far cry from the earlier first do no harm. Rather, it appears to be first preserve the status quo. The president's working group on financial markets recently published a report on stablecoins. Overall, the report is disappointing. It's highly defensive and reactionary, focused more on what could go wrong rather than what could go right if the innovation is properly developed. It fails to declare a national policy in harnessing digital asset innovation to upgrade our creaky financial system infrastructure to expand inclusiveness and lower costs for new generations of Americans. It's a missed opportunity. Two years ago, I co-founded the Digital Dollar Project digitaldollarproject.org, a nonpartisan think tank to consider the merits of a tokenized form of a U.S. central bank digital currency. Since then, we've considered a tokenized bearer instrument issued by the Federal Reserve, distributed through the two-tiered banking system, and operated alongside physical currency, commercial bank money, and even perhaps stable coins. This digital dollar would mirror many of the properties of physical cash, but in a digital form. Instead of withdrawing paper dollars from an ATM and putting them in a leather wallet, you could withdraw digital dollars into a digital wallet. You could then spend digital dollars directly, 
peer-to-peer at the corner grocery or online around the globe. As a former chief regulator, I believe in considering what could go wrong with any innovation, especially ones that affect the American economy. However, as a thought experiment, I'd like to consider for just a moment what could go right. First, some worry that a digital dollar might decrease money held in commercial banks. But what if the opposite happens? What if more money moves into the banking sector, especially if previously un- or underbanked communities shift digital dollars into bank accounts because of the ease of doing so? And what if mobile devices and digital wallets provide attractive on-ramps to banking services, offering interest on deposits and government insurance? And what if greater ease in converting commercial bank money into digital dollars would make people less likely to do so in a panic? Secondly, many are rightly concerned with cryptocurrency energy consumption. But what if a digital dollar used much, much less energy than Bitcoin and other decentralized proof-of-work digital assets? And what if a digital dollar even used less energy than is currently used for physical mining, minting, and distribution of paper dollars and metal coins? Third, some are concerned that a digital dollar would negatively impact current business models for payments. But what if a digital dollar actually lowers payment costs and bank fees for consumers and small businesses? And what if it provides instantaneous settlement, reducing cash flow stress that plagues small businesses and American consumers with costly overdraft and other fees? And what if the economic benefit of increased activity from digital money results in expanding economic opportunity, business formation, and productivity? Now, fourth, all of us are rightly concerned about infringing individual privacy through mass surveillance of digital money. But what if a digital dollar was carefully engineered from the outset to incorporate democratic expectations of individual privacy consistent with our Constitution? And what if we strike the right balance between the legitimate needs of law enforcement with democratic protections of individual privacy? And what if a digital dollar with such legal and due process limitations provides superior protection of individual privacy compared to many other sovereign and indeed non-sovereign commercial digital currencies. Finally, some argue that the dollar's status as the world's reserve currency is so well entrenched, it requires no further innovation. But what if a digital dollar improves financial stability, productivity, and efficiency while enhancing the dollar with new functionality? ease of use, and smart contract programmability? And what if we add these enhancements while preserving the dollar's recognized competitive advantages, the backing of a robust and strong economy, good governance, openness, and the rule of law? If we do these things, would we not then have prepared the U.S. dollar to serve our fellow citizens in the coming digital future of money? There's only one way to find out, and that's real-world pilot programs that can answer the question of the role of American innovation and a digital dollar in the future of money. The Digital Dollar Project will be doing some of that testing in the year ahead. We intend to find out not only what could go wrong, but what could go right. Thanks. I look forward to your questions, Larry. You know, you're the first crypto speaker that I've had on my podcast. I faced enormous pressure from my listeners to discuss this topic. Everybody's interested. And I know one of the most exciting things about crypto is it was going to radically affect the payment system. And yet, I don't know anybody who actually has ever used it to pay for any good or service. What do you make of that? There's a lot more about this new innovation than just payments. Economists will tell you that there's three traditional characteristics of money. And payments is is one of them, but it's not the only one. There's a unit of account. You know, when you go to the grocery store, the price is stated in dollars. You go into one in France, the, the price is stated in euros. So that's a unit of account. Third one is a store of value. Bitcoin is actually turning out to be a pretty attractive store of value at a time when 40% of the dollars in circulation today were created in the last 24 months. The dollars turning out perhaps not to be as good of a store of value today than it was a few years ago because of inflation. And yet Bitcoin, which has a limited supply, is turning out to be an attractive store of value. And so 
when you look at all three characteristics of money, this new innovation is more than just payments. Stablecoins are serving to be a fairly good means of payments. In my first econ class, my Penn professor, Claudia Golden, explained to us the beauty of a currency as a store of value. The enormous benefit is that if Chris wants to provide a service to Larry, Larry doesn't necessarily have to provide a service to Chris as an exchange. Instead, Larry can get cash that can be exchanged for a service with a third party. If Chris gives me a dollar, that's something of value that has equivalent value the next day. And what's shocking about Bitcoin is it's so volatile. Every morning, I have no idea where it's going to be trading. Two weeks ago, we had a flash crash. It was down 20% on a Saturday. Why is a volatile asset a good vehicle for exchange? Bitcoin, as one of thousands of cryptocurrencies, very much resembles a commodity. And that's why during my tenure at the CFTC in 2015, we declared it to be a commodity. Commodities of fixed supply are always volatile. Why is that? Because if you cannot decrease or increase the supply in response to demand, then only one thing can happen, price movement. So when you have fixed supply commodity and demand rises or falls, there's only one reaction, and that will be in price. That's not so surprising because that's exactly what we see in oil, even though we can actually adjust demand of oil. And yet two years ago, oil was trading at below zero, and today it's close to $80 a barrel. And yet we don't declare that somehow that commodity is illegitimate, but we recognize there's volatility in the price. And that's why we have derivative markets to hedge that volatility in price. And now we have derivative markets, thanks to our work at the CFTC in Bitcoin, which have helped people to mitigate that price. But there's no question that it's volatile. I would say the volatility of Bitcoin is not a design flaw. It's a design feature because of fixed supply and the inability to adjust supply. Look, the dollar is is relatively not volatile because our government adjusts the supply in response to rise and fall in demand, but also uses it to deflate its value in order to service our debt and alternative reasons why a conscious choice is being made to depreciate the dollar. But as a store of value, that is challenging. And so all these characteristics you know, are to be debated, to be discussed, but in a sophisticated economy, there's a lot more to this innovation than just Bitcoin and its volatility or its limitations as, as, a, as a means of payment. It really goes back from the dawn of time until about four or 500 years ago, money came in one form, and that was as a token. You know, whether it was a bead or shell or a clay tablet or a, a piece of metal with the emperor's head on it, the value was in the thing itself. To validate its value was simply validating the token itself. And we discovered during the age of discovery in the 1600s, the limitation of the token system. Tokens are local instruments. Dutch merchants found that their, their Dutch guilders didn't work when they went to Venice to engage in trade. And so they came up with a banknote system. They put those Dutch guilders in the basement of the Bank of Amsterdam, and they received a banknote. And their banknote allowed them to go to Venice and trade for that. And the banknote system is basically what we have today. It solved the local limitation of tokenized money. 90% of transactions today are in the banknote system. If you use Zelle or Venmo or a paper check or a credit card, you're basically relying on the credit of an institution. And the, to validate that transaction, it, you're not validating a token. You're validating identity. And that's why our entire payment system relies on identity. If you go into a, a, a deli with a $10 bill to buy a sandwich and use a token, you validate the $10 bill. But if you want to use anything else, a debit card, a credit card, somewhere it's got to validate that you're Larry Bernstein, that you bank with Wells Fargo, and you've got so much money in your bank, and that your bank is crediting another bank. There's a whole series of validations of people and places. There's a whole amount of information leakage. And guess what? We're discovering the shortcomings of that system. It's exclusive. If you don't have identity, you cannot engage in that financial system. And in a world of 8 billion people, 1.5 billion do not have identity today, are excluded from that system. It's also slow because of all of that validation that needs to take place. And it's expensive. It costs the world 1% or 2% of its GDP just to move money around the globe to do all that validation.
So what's the breakthrough technology here? It's putting the validation of value outside of single point of failure banks and institutions and putting it on a distributed ledger, on a blockchain, and using an al- a computer algorithm drawing on the World Wide Web and using cryptography to confirm the validity of the thing itself. In a sense, it's a, it's a back to the future moment. We're going to go back to a tokenized system using a distributed ledger in the World Wide Web to validate the thing itself. It solves the shortcoming of tokenized money and the exclusivity, cost, and latency of bank-based money. It breaks through that. It will be instantaneous. The ability to send money around the globe will be as easy as sending a text message around the world in a second without the need for all of those vested rent-collecting identifiers and validators in the system. Instead, you'll have an algorithm confirming it in the same way that the World Wide Web You you send a photograph and it goes through the web and recreates itself on somebody's desktop in in Japan in a nanosecond using an algorithm without having to rely on Kodak or all these other intermediaries to process that and deliver it. So it it truly is a breakthrough in the nature of money itself. Chris, I'm very excited to just intermediate the banking system. But what concerns me is that Bitcoin's transaction costs are quite high, and in some cases, much higher than credit cards and less convenient. Let me give you an example. So if, Chris, you send me a Bitcoin, it goes into my digital wallet, but I don't want coin, I want dollars. So I go to a crypto exchange, and I exchange it for dollars, but they charge me a commission, and very often it's like 2%. And that's very similar to the credit card fee. Yeah, because it's still so early in in the development of this, it, you know. It's a lot like the very early days of, of e-commerce when, when you know, we're first doing transactions on the web and, and um, uh, you know, before PayPal, before being, entering credit card information. Uh, in fact, I think the ABA was sending letters, you know, directives to lawyers saying that online transactions are not necessarily legal transactions. Uh, well, now we do those transactions routinely all the time and the costs have come down and with Moore's Law the cost of this will come down, but it's still early. It's still an infrastructure that is augmenting the traditional framework of identification first in every case, but that will uh, resolve itself. I I don't think the state of the art today of the cost of the system is, is it will be the state of the art four years from now because this is evolving so rapidly. Let's talk about Venmo next. So you're right. Lots of, People aren't banked. My kids aren't banked, but they do have Venmo. And I watch those feeds. And man, money between kids' accounts, they move fast. Just Venmo me. It's even a verb. And the transaction costs in Venmo are low. Facebook made a press release that it was going to have its own coin, and the government put the kibosh on it almost immediately. Walmart was prevented from having its own bank. Why is the government so concerned about non-banks doing banking-like transactions like payments and credit? Great question. There are seven reasons why every central bank in the world are eventually going to adopt central bank digital currency. Uh, Seven reasons that I describe in my book. The first one was the potential of commercial actors to capture all of that economic activity data that takes place in an economy. And it was China that first realized the potential of two very successful uh, Chinese payment systems, uh, p- commercial payment providers, WeChat Pay and Alipay, that were capturing enormous amounts of data it, that drove China to introduce its digital yuan and to suppress uh, the activities of those two payment providers. Because in a communist system, it's the central dogma that the, uh, the party uh, needs to control all of that economic data. But as you exactly say, it wasn't just China because it was the same reaction in our Western democratic governments in Europe and the United States when Facebook contemplated something called Libra, which was going to be its digital payment system. So data capture is a huge driver of interest in either a non-sovereign or sovereign a digital payment system it's both the first reason of, of seven. 
But it, in some ways, it perhaps remains the most important one, because in a world where either a non-sovereign can capture all our economic data or a government can, the issue of privacy and, and censorship and surveillance becomes preeminent of the concerns of a free society. What do fundamental freedoms of you know, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, freedom of assembly mean in a capitalist system other than how you spend your money? Right. You give money to your church and synagogue. You give money to freedom fighters or causes that you believe in. And you expect to do that in a way that's private and, and can't be censored either by commercial actors to promote their goods or services or governments to push a, a political cause or a political point of view. And so we at the Digital Dollar Project recently released a series of policy principles that apply to both sovereign and non-sovereign money. Because we believe that in a democracy where there is digital money, the biggest risk in a system like that is that the convenience will be so great that people will surrender their, their rights to privacy, either to their government or to a, a big tech company. And that's a great concern, we believe, to a democracy. Why do some government agencies in their regulatory discretion encourage innovation more than others? Can you please compare the SEC with the CFTC that you led? I think your listeners are quite familiar with the Securities Exchange Commission, our, our, our country's primary regulator for our equity and debt markets. And what are those markets? Those are markets of capital formation. Somebody with a good idea, but without the requisite capital to realize it, is able to find people with capital and marry them up. So it's, these are markets, whether in the form of debt or, or shares in a company, for capital formation and capital transfer. U.S. markets for debt and equity are the deepest and most liquid in the world, regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission. That's not what the CFTC does. The CFTC regulates a different type of market, a market for risk hedging. A business has certain risks, usually the price of commodities. Let's say it's a manufacturing plant. And they've got, they use energy to, to heat the plant and cool the plant or run their machinery or a farming operation that has the risk of variable seed costs and at the end of the harvest season, the rise and fall of commodity prices that could either make them profitable for the year or, or unprofitable, depending on where prices of their produce is at harvest time. So markets where you go to hedge your risk are markets for derivatives like futures and swaps and options. And the United States has a separate regulator for risk hedging markets as a regulator for capital formation markets. And the proof is in the pudding that the U.S. risk hedging markets are orders of magnitude bigger than they are anywhere in the world. And I think that's a result of having a primary regulator. And why does that matter to Americans? Because our markets are so deep and liquid that the world takes its price for those key commodities from these American markets. The price for oil, the price for ag products, including cotton and soybeans, the price for precious metals, the price for um, benchmarks like interest rates and foreign exchange are actually set in American markets in dollars regulated by an American regulator. They're not set in Paris. They're not set in Singapore. They're not set in Beijing. They're set in Chicago and New York for the most part. And that's a tremendous advantage for Americans and one of the key underpinnings of the U.S. dollar. So we have a special regulator to do this. This SEC was formed in the 1930s as a result of the Great Depression. The, the CFTC regulated markets had actually been regulated since the, the Civil War by self-regulatory organizations. And in the 1930s, Congress actually created a bureau with the Department of Agriculture to oversee those self-regulatory organizations. Now, here's what's really interesting. In the 1970s, a couple of brilliant people in Chicago, including one that you just had on your show, uh, Leo Malamed, invented something that changed the nature of the world, and that was financial futures. Until the 1970s, we had an effective way to, to hedge the risk of commodity products, things that came out of the ground. But we really didn't have a means of hedging financial risk, the risk of, of different exchange rates around the world or different currency rates. And he and a few other luminaries invented financial futures. And the product was so extraordinary, it actually enabled the world to go off the gold standard. The world could have never gone off the gold standard 
if it could not hedge the risk of exchange rates moving between one country and other or currency rates moving. So this product was so big and so transformative that they were worried that if it was regulated by the SEC, the product would be killed. The SEC, they didn't perceive to be a regulator when new products went to succeed, but where new products went to be smothered. And so they went to the Ford administration, ultimately to the Carter administration, and said, you know that bureau at the Department of Agriculture that oversees these futures markets? Let's turn it into a full-blown regulatory agency, the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, and we'll make that a regulator for these markets. And that's why the CFTC was born. And it was given a mandate from the beginning to foster innovation. And to this day, the CFTC has overseen more new product innovation than all the world's market regulators combined. And that's how successful it's been at fostering new innovation. And it's why when the world looks to develop a new product to hedge risk, it goes to the CFTC. And it's no surprise that the world's first and today only regulated deep, liquid, transparent market for hedging Bitcoin risk, price risk, is overseen by the CFTC. In your book, I loved your framework for evaluating specific regulation. You looked to see if a new reg positively or negatively impacted liquidity for a specific security. I thought that was novel and a brilliant insight to determine if the regulators were doing harm. Earlier, you mentioned that there is less liquidity in the cash wheat market as compared to wheat futures. And that contrasts sharply with our experience so far in Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin liquidity is enormous. It's global, it's 24-7, and you can trade lots of Bitcoin without a substantial market impact. And last night, as I was preparing for this talk, I looked up the volume for Bitcoin futures in the previous few hours, and Bitcoin futures had only traded 110 coins. That's nothing. And so to my surprise and disappointment, Bitcoin futures has failed as a product. Generally, liquidity gravitates to one market. And in Bitcoin's case, volume and liquidity is in the spot market for Bitcoin and not in futures. Let's start with liquidity itself. Liquidity is not measured in quantity. It's measured qualitatively. It's almost like a diamond with its different facets to it. So there's depth of liquidity. There's breadth of liquidity. By breadth, I mean how many participants are in the market. Sometimes the number of participants is much more important than the depth of liquidity. There is the dynamics of liquidity. You know, Is it there in a bunch at 3.30 to 4 p.m. and otherwise not available most of the day in the cash Bitcoin markets? Is it 24-7 actually more prevalent on weekends than it is during the weekday because a lot of retail traders can actually trade on Saturday as opposed to being busy during the rest of the week earning a living. Where is it concentrated? What, what does concentration look like? Is it large players as we find in our equity markets or is it a lot of little folks as is the case in the Bitcoin? There's a lot that's actually quite attractive about the liquidity in the Bitcoin market. It's a much more retail environment. In fact, it, it's almost a place where the SEC has forced small traders to go because the SEC's approach to investor protection has basically been to squeeze small participants out of the market unless they qualify as accredited investors. And so they've actually gone to this marketplace as a place where they can engage. The nature of Bitcoin liquidity is, is very unique. Now, this is a very nascent market. It's relatively new. I disagree that Bitcoin futures are a failure because I think it's actually provided the place where institutional investors can get access to the market in a way that they can't approach some of these overseas retail venues for regulatory compliance purposes. And the fact that it's transparent, the fact that it's regulated by a regulator gives them access to it. So I think it's succeeded in bringing an institutional level to what is still largely a retail marketplace. The other thing that's interesting about this market is it's very much a global 24-7, 365. It's the world's first truly global retail marketplace that's open seven days a week. I think in that, it's a precursor of what's likely to come. Up until now, our markets have been you know, pretty much globally and nationally divided. You know, That's one of the things that the internet did to commerce. It's one of the things the internet did to information. And I think it's naive to think it won't do it to financial markets. Bitcoin proves 
It's already doing it to financial markets. I'm a former chairman of an agency with a strong enforcement tradition. There is a lot of fraud manipulation taking place in all of the cryptocurrency markets today. One of the reasons we went forward with Bitcoin futures at the CFTC, despite a lot of pressure by domestic and overseas regulators not to do so, was to bring sunlight to it, to bring a degree of regulation to it. If you try to avoid regulation of a market because you think you do not want to legitimize it, all you do, in a sense, is turn it over to the bad guys who can prey on the unwary and the unsuspecting. Despite the bad guys, there's plenty of good people, plenty of legitimate activities in this market. And, and in fact, it's in a, attracted an interest that, that we regulators, in some cases, have driven away from our own equity markets because of our over paternalistic approach to them. And so I think the right approach is that first do no harm approach of the early internet. We need to bring regulation in, but in a way that is smart, that's open, and that's conducive to people exercising economic activity while we go out and catch those bad guys and crack down on them. The most popular show this past year on What Happens Next was uh, the subject of GameStop. Bitcoin and GameStop have a, a lot of similarities. Both crypto and GameStop are dominated by small retail investors and not institutional players. You've got the chat rooms. Both assets have enormous volatility and those huge run-ups and crashes. I suspect that a part of this volatility might be driven by high leverage by these individuals that have over 100 to 1 leverage. So a 1% decline would stop out the investor. During my GameStop episode, I interviewed Marcy Engel, who is a former Salm Brothers lawyer, and she told us that historically regulators have viewed manipulation to be when a handful of large speculators work together to move the price. But here with Bitcoin and GameStop, we've got thousands and maybe even a million people involved. How do you think about the regulatory enforcement issues given current law for pump and dump schemes as it applies to crypto? I think there's a generation gap here as wide as the generation gap that I grew up in, which was you know, over social issues like the war in Vietnam or civil rights. Today, we've got a generation gap that's based upon who do you trust? And you know, the, the institutions that I grew up in admiring, like the Securities Exchange Commission, like the Federal Reserve, and like the banking system, do not enjoy the trust of this generation. My first institutional relationship, and most people my age, outside of my school was a bank because I had a summer job and I needed to go to the bank to get my cash check and I had a passbook savings account. Young people today, long before they set foot in a branch bank, have had relationships with uh, social media companies, with online retailers like Amazon, long before they set foot in a branch bank. So is it any surprise that they are more comfortable with getting financial information from TikTok than they are from listening to Jim Cramer? I think a lot of the speaking past each other is people my age telling young people that they should approach financial markets the way I was taught to do it. It's not happening. They are in a different world. We need to go to them rather than demand they come to us. The SEC's approach to investor protection that basically says, unless you're one of 13 million Americans out of 300 million that have enough wealth or enough experience in financial markets to be able to trade some of the most exciting opportunities as accredited investors, Otherwise, you're locked out. That's just not working anymore. And so the SEC is squandering, I think, a lot of its goodwill by this regressive, repressive approach. We need to go where these young people are, not to say you're foolish and you're silly and you're dumb. And it's just not going to work. I mean, you know, and especially at the time when government's handing out money and without any restrictions, of course, they're investing in what excites them. We got to rethink this. If we're going to close the generation gap, it's not that they've got to come to us. We've got to kind of go to them a little bit. We need to start opening up to this new innovation. Young people are attracted to trading these markets because they are finding a lot of the same characteristics, this gamification environment that they grew up in playing video games. You know, a lot of what's driving this activity is at age 14, they were trading. Uh, suits of armor and avatars in their game environments with people they didn't even know around the world. And the experience was one that they enjoyed. 
And they're now coming into financial markets. They've got jobs. They've got some money. And they're engaging in these markets in a lot of the same way that we as parents allowed them to do in our basements. But suddenly we're going to say to them, oh, but now that you're an adult making your own money, you can't do that anymore. It's just not going to work, Larry. We've got to recalibrate. We've got to bridge this generation gap. And it's not going to work by saying, you know, the only way you can trade stocks is you've got to go to a full service broker or go to Charles Schwab. You can't do it on a Robin Hood. Looks too happy and no confetti when you buy a stock and it goes up in value. I mean, it's just, I think Elon Musk said it best. I mean, it's like, you know, being yelled at by the mother at the house you visited after school. I mean, that seems to be what passes for consumer protection, investor protection. It's not working. I held a Bitcoin conference probably a decade ago, and a Winklevoss twin described his difficulty in getting an ETF listing for Bitcoin. And it took the SEC over a decade to make any progress. Why is the SEC so slow with its ETF relative to your CFTC that was able to turn around a Bitcoin feature in a few months? I'm not naive. I know quite a bit about the degree of fraud manipulation that takes place in the spot markets. And yet, there's enough activity there that I don't think they are entirely driven by fraud manipulation, but it takes place there. When our well-established exchange operators, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, Chicago Board Option Exchange came to us with their Bitcoin futures, we spent a lot of time drilling down into the methodology of how they developed their settlement price. And you know these operators are quite sophisticated. They understand the underlying markets well, and so they have methodologies that make it very hard to manipulate the futures price. How do they do that? Well, for example, they don't just take the price at the close of the trading day when it can be manipulated by large orders. They take it at a series of random six-minute intervals over the course of a day. So their methodology of developing a settlement price is very, very hard to manipulate. The future price was not readily susceptible to manipulation, which is our you know, bright line test as to whether a, a new product can be listed or not. We greenlighted that in 2017. I believe that market is work, working well. It's well policed for fraud manipulation. And it's now four years. The proof is in the pudding as to its workability. And the SEC recently was able to get comfortable with a ETF based upon that CFTC Bitcoin futures market, but still has not gotten comfortable and this goes back to the original Winklevoss Gemini application for a Bitcoin ETF based upon not the CFTC regulated Bitcoin futures market, but an underlying spot market in physically settled spot, meaning physical delivery Bitcoin futures. I can understand their hesitancy because our surveillance people at the CFTC, at the SEC are aware of the degree of manipulation of those underlying spot markets. If we need to rethink an investor protection approach that simply says we're going to protect you by banning your access, I think we need to get to an investor protection approach that says we know you want access. Let's work with you to find ways to mitigate your risk, but not just say no is just not going to work in a digital borderless world. Chris, why are you called the crypto dad? After we had greenlighted Bitcoin futures in December 2017, I received a summons to appear before the Senate Banking Committee alongside uh, SEC Chairman Jay Clayton to basically explain what we had done and why we did it. And I was anticipating getting bloodied by some that felt that we had legitimized Bitcoin. I prepared a long summation of every step we had made. I think it, when it came out, it was 45 or 50 pages in length, going through chapter and verse of our decision to greenlight Bitcoin futures. When you give testimony in front of a congressional committee, you have in front of you a clock. And when you give your statement, you've got five minutes, immediately goes green at 4.59, and then it starts counting down. And at one minute, it goes yellow. And at zero, it goes red. And, and a second later, you're gaveled to stop. So you've got to get your words in, sort of like my opening to your show today. I looked at that 45-page manuscript and said, there's no way I can summarize this in five minutes. So I actually decided to do something different. So that next morning, when my light on my screen went green, I'm in front of these assembled senators on their raised dais in, in, in a face-to-face -face meeting, and the whole room is packed. I said, Senators, I know I'm here as the chairman of a federal regulatory agency, but if you don't mind, I'd just like to talk to you as a dad. 
And then I explained that I'd just come back from our family ski trip and all my nieces and nephews and, and kids wanted to talk about the whole time was Bitcoin. And they knew we had just greenlighted Bitcoin futures and it was Bitcoin this, Bitcoin that. And I was thinking, you know, these are kids that my brothers and I had tried to interest in the stock market when they were in their teens. We'd give them little brokerage accounts, a few hundred dollars, and they had absolutely no interest. But suddenly, you know, all they're interested in is Bitcoin. And I said, you know, senators, you probably had some of these conversations around your own kitchen table. And I think we owe it to this generation not to dismiss their interest with disdain and derision as if it's something silly, but to take it seriously and get these regulations right in a way that respects this interest. And, you know, it was like the words were out of my mouth and my Twitter handle just exploded. I, I think I had like 1,200 Twitter followers when I started that hearing. Three days later, I had 50,000 Twitter followers and they were giving me all kinds of names. One that kind of stuck was Crypto Dad, because I said, I want to talk to you as a dad. And so that's where I got the name. And at first, I kind of didn't know what to do with it. And then I decided I'm going to embrace it because it gives me an ability. And if I'm known for anything, I think it's that that I recognize this generational difference. You know, I'm 62. I guess I'm the kind of parent that listened to my kids and learned a lot from them. And I recognize that this digital divide is real and it's big and it's not going away and just dismissing it or saying that, you know, you've got to do things in the markets the old fashioned way. It's just not going to work. We've got to meet this generation where it lives and where it is and understand what they're doing. And this innovation is coming. It's not going to be pushed aside. It's not going to be shut down. We can't just say no and preserve the banking system, as I think the president's working group would like to do. To think that the internet won't change banking and money and financial services in the same way it's totally changed retail shopping, photography, music, entertainment, and travel is just naive. It's going to. And I think every one of your listeners needs to anticipate how it's going to happen. I don't know every detail how it's going to play out, but it's going to affect financial systems and money itself the same way it's affected everything else that we've come, come to know in the last uh, generation. In your opening remarks, you talked about the importance of blockchain and that it's a huge energy user. Most of my listeners have no clue about crypto, the ledger, or blockchain. Can you explain what the blockchain is and why it's important? Keep the energy issue in mind. It costs use a lot of energy to keep all those ATM machines open in those, you know, in those branch bank foyers and the lights on and the security cameras operating. Takes a lot of energy to mine nickel and, and and other materials out of the ground and mint paper dollars. The value of all these cryptos is in the network itself. You might say the same thing about Amazon. What makes Amazon so powerful is the network. Is the fact that you can shop for anything on it from any vendor. It's the it's the network effect, and and you know that's one of the things we've learned in this internet wave. It's it's the network effect of Facebook. And yet the thing that has perhaps one of the biggest network is still analog, and that's the dollar network. Imagine if you put monetary systems from a informal network of influence, which is what, what the dollar zone or the euro zone is, and you actually move it to a network. That's the power, right? That's the power of what the internet did to retail shopping. Right now in our financial system, We've got a series of silos. If you want to do a commercial loan transaction, you go to one banking institution. If you want to do a global payments, you're using MasterCard, Visa, Zelle, Venmo, you're in another, you're in another silo. If you want to do wholesale hedge on oil prices, you're dealing with other intermediaries. The potential is for a digital currency, say a digital dollar, to be the operating system for a fully integrated financial system network. That is such a powerful idea. That would take so much cost and latency out of our financial markets. And that's what China envisions their digital yuan to be able to do. Now, whether they can execute on that successfully is an open question. But it's the big idea that, that they're contemplating that we somehow in the West still don't get. We're, we're, we have so much vested in the legacy silo base financial system that we're not, I don't think, fully seeing the big picture of digital currency. It's not about ultimately 
about Bitcoin or Ethereum or this currency or that currency or or stablecoin. It's ultimately about the you, you know taking that same network effect that totally transformed retail shopping, that's transformed information. I could never envision what that you know the first surfing the web on something called Netscape Navigator would have resulted in a world going locked down during COVID and yet still seem to access meetings and you know, commercial activities and still do shopping because of this these network effects of the internet. I can't quite tell you how this network effect of finance and money is going to play out, but I can tell you it will be as transformational. You mentioned a, a digital dollar or stable coin. Let me define it first. Bitcoin is just that. You're buying and selling some cryptocurrency and it's not convertible. A stable coin for U.S. dollar is exchangeable for a buck. As, as a result, it should trade at parity of $1. But if you take a dollar and you put it in the bank, you'll earn interest. A stable coin may or may not pay interest, and so that will create an arbitrage. Chris, when you were discussing that the Federal Reserve would offer you digital dollars, I suspect that the Federal Reserve digital dollar will not pay any interest. And so the government would benefit by seniorage, which is equivalent to what it is for cash, no interest. But arbitrageurs will offer a product that pays interest, unlike the Federal Reserve, and it'll be a competitive interest rate. And this product will place the dollars in a safe investment like a treasury bill or have money on account with the Fed. Another stablecoin will take credit risk and invest the stablecoin reserves in a short-term asset that is not risk-free, like a bank deposit or maybe a money market fund or maybe something really risky. And back before the Federal Reserve existed, state banks would issue banknotes backed by a combination of gold and loans. And during economic downturns and depressions, these state banks would go bust. So should we expect similar results for stablecoin that takes credit risk, that they too will break the buck? Look, stablecoins are relatively new, they're evolving. Where they might evolve to is a fascinating subject. I'm in favor of a great deal of experimentation and diversification as we learn our way through. I think that the pre-Fed period of state banks and national banks is often denigrated as being a, a crazy period of time and a crazy economic system. Yet it was a time of enormous economic growth in the United States, even though some of those state bank issuers of money failed. I think we can tolerate some innovation for some period of time here. And I'm not in favor of the Fed launching a digital dollar to squeeze out uh, stable coins until we see what results from this, giving people access to portability of money 24-7, 365 days a year, as opposed to what we have today, which is money moves during banking hours for the most part. I think we should take a national interest in promoting this innovation. Now, my predecessor at the CFTC, Chairman Tim Massad, wrote a very good piece at the Brookings Institute recently where he rightfully identified some of the risks and concerns, including a lack of disclosure as to what stablecoin holders are actually holding. But he also identified, I think, some of the upside opportunities in this, which I think is the right approach. Just let's be even-handed about it. I think we should follow Tim's lead with some regulation, perhaps legislation, that would require better transparency by stablecoin operators, some guardrails against uh, risky holdings. But I think we should further this innovation, not try to stifle it. And I think there will be opportunity for arbitrageurs. I think there will be opportunity for financial innovation. And I think that's good. You know, we, we are a capitalist system. We should be engaged in capital experimentation with good, sound regulation at all times. You know, regulators do not have a mandate to say, you know, we like the financial structure circa 2018. All innovation needs to stop because we're comfortable where it was. Regulators always have to follow the innovation. That's our lot in life. That's our job. In, you know, we should forward innovation and, and some things may go wrong and then we'll have to catch up and we'll have to correct those. But I'd rather have some things go wrong because we're innovating as a society rather than try to hope that nothing goes wrong because we stop innovation as a society. That will never work. I call it the fight for the future of money. And I think part of the fight is perhaps some voices that would say, let's stop innovating because it's too risky to innovate. I reject that approach. I think we've got to take the risk of innovation. Once you stop innovating, you stop learning. And once you stop learning as a society, you, re you regress and, and a lot of your fellow citizens declines.
once you stop innovating, you stop learning. And once you stop learning as a society, you re, you regress, and and a lot of your fellow citizens declines. I think we've got to innovate at the risk of getting some things wrong. And our regulators need to be empowered to be kept up to date. They need the funding. They I argue for this in my book. Regulators need to be affirmatively funded well so they can keep pace with innovation, not have their funding limited so that they then try to stop innovation because they simply can't keep up with it. Crypto is held with third parties. A crypto exchange, Mt. Gox, located in Japan, was hacked a few years ago. Bitcoins were stolen. This stolen Bitcoin resulted in the bankruptcy of the exchange. Now, I appreciate that banks get hacked too, and they spend billions of dollars in cybersecurity. But do you expect hacking to be a serious problem for crypto owners in the future? You know, in 14 years, Bitcoin's never been successfully hacked. You'd have to bring down the whole internet in the same way that Wikipedia or the same way that the internet has never been brought down, right? Because there is no single point of failure. By disintermediating the single points of failure and putting things on networks, then unless one can bring down the entire network and the broader the network, the less likely it is to bring down the entire network, that you take away the single points of failure. Now, I I think that's theoretical, and yet we do have some proof that it works. Once we're talking about things of value, there's always bad guys, you know, as the, the famous Bank robber said, you know, when they asked him, why do you rob banks? He said, because that's where the money is, right? If you have single points of failure in the banking system, there are always going to be attempt hacks. But if you can go to a network effect, it's very hard to bring it down. And I think that's one of the exciting opportunities. Another strange example of criminal malfeasance was when hackers took over a natural gas pipeline and demanded a ransom to be paid in Bitcoin. I was a bit flabbergasted when Colonial Pipeline got their Bitcoin returned. What happened here? Well, you know, because once you go to an immutable ledger, which is what the blockchains do, you know where all the money goes. In Bitcoin, the system is of pseudonymity. So day-to-day transactions are apparently anonymous, but the blockchain keeps a, a record of every transaction. And so if you can unmask that pseudonymity and get to the underlying identity, you can identify you know, who was involved in every stage. And with the colonial pipeline hack, that was the case. They were able to identify, quite frankly, every party to the transaction. And those parties that were reachable, basically either onshore or in in destinations that were reachable by law enforcement, they were able to recover the money. The ultimate fraudsters who were out of reach of law enforcement in parts of Central Asia, they were not able to get them, but they know who they are. Now, had those hackers ask for ransom, not in Bitcoin, but in paper dollars or diamonds or gold, we wouldn't even know who they are. In everything, there's a silver lining. I mean, you know, that hack is both cited by opponents of Bitcoin, but also cited by proponents of Bitcoin. As once you go to an immutable ledger, the record is there. It's immutable. I end each episode on a note of optimism. Chris, what are you optimistic about? This new generational thing. I actually think that if we listen carefully enough, young people are actually pointing out to us all the deficiencies in the financial system that somehow we've gotten okay with. You know, it's slowness, it's cost, it's lack of user friendliness, it's exclusivity. For some reason, we've become too complacent about it. You know, the notion of tokenized money means that people without identity can engage in financial transactions. That's a lot of people. That's about a billion and a half people in this world. And young people are saying to us, why have we excluded them for so long? Why are we forcing expatriates around the world to pay up to 17% to remit money back to their home country? There's a lot of things that are unattractive about our financial system that we take for granted and young people don't. And, you know, life's a conveyor belt. You know, people my generation, we're close to the end. You know, they're coming along and they're going to bring these notions with them. If you don't believe that technology is going to change things, young people will because they're bringing different ideas to their financial interactions. They're not going to discard those ideas simply because we tell them they're foolish or they're naive. They're not not listening to that old people talk. I mean, they're going to bring these notions with them. Regulators come and go. I served proudly for five years. I'm now in the private sector. The current slate of regulators that, that may be looking down their nose at this innovation, they will come and go. These young people are going to move forward, and these changes are happening and they're going to happen. The Omicron storm is coming, and you need to have an action plan. So let's turn it over to Dr. Ari Cement, who joins us once again. There's been a discussion as to which monoclonal antibody to use. If somebody gets COVID, 
So now that they're really drying up in these monoclonal antibody sites, the best thing you can do if you have any of the risk factors is to get the infusion as, as soon as possible. Against the Omicron variant, the one that works has been notably sotrovimab. So the question is, should you try to get sotrovimab or should you get the Regeneron infusion? A lot of places are getting flack for using Regeneron because the predominant strain is supposedly Omicron. What is fascinating is that we're seeing more and more that the Omicron is less severe and there is actually a higher percentage of Delta variant than we originally thought. Uh-huh. The dilemma is, should you take Regeneron, which is stronger against the Delta variant, or should you take the Citrovimab, which gives you coverage against the Delta, maybe not as good, but it also covers Omicron. I'm going to repeat that back to you to make sure that the listeners understand what we're talking about here. The CDC made an announcement earlier this week that the percentage of COVID cases that are Delta is much higher than they thought versus Omicron. Something like 75% of cases nationwide are Delta and not Omicron. Omicron's growing, but it's still predominantly Delta. It turns out that Omicron is much less risky in terms of hospitalization than Delta. So the more dangerous Delta is the one we need to worry about. Ari, which monoclonal is best against Delta? Regeneron. I think the overall major point that I would make is that if let's say you've had only two vaccines, you haven't had your booster yet, and then you got COVID, you could have a significant breakthrough infection. And so instead of sitting around and doing nothing saying, oh, we don't have citrovimab, so why bother? I would actually, if you, especially if you have risk factors, you're older than 65, I would push to get the Regeneron, which is going to cover 30 to 40% chance that I have the Delta. The caveat is I think in different locations, the Omicron probably has a higher percentage. Like I believe South Florida probably has a higher percentage of Omicron than in other places in the United States, but still we don't know the numbers. So you have to imagine that you have the Delta. Ari gave me a chart that I will make available on the transcript of today's program. The chart illustrates the response function of each of the various monoclonal antibodies to the different COVID variants. The experiment takes blood and bodily fluids that contain the COVID variant, and then in a lab setting, they combine the monoclonal antibodies with the variant, and they see the scale of the response function. Right. Ari, how do you interpret the monoclonal antibody results? The lowest possible number means the most effectiveness of this antibody, right? So, for instance, um, Regeneron 10. 933 versus the delta is going to have a 0.0009, whereas citrovimab has a 0.2188, which is many fold higher than that number of regen 10933. So it's not as effective. Mm -hmm. All those numbers are greater than 10. That's essentially saying that it's worthless. In a petri dish, it's worthless. It's not really doing anything. Whereas if you look at citrovimab, 0.0950, citrovimab certainly has activity against the Omicron. But, you know, jury's still out because we don't know 100%, but it does seem that the Omicron typically is less severe. So the Omicron, if it comes, it goes, and boom, you're done. I think a better question is what do you do if you got COVID and you're asymptomatic and you feel fine? So I've had this happen many times already. And if somebody has risk factors and they know it's a new positive test, I do push for them to get the monoclonal because of the fear of the cytokine storm later on. I've had some cases they didn't take the, the medicine because they felt it's fine, and then they were sick later on. Mm-hmm. They sort of tempered, got through it with a little steroid, and it was fine, but I'm just saying like it can happen. The other interesting the thing that, that's come up is whether or not you should take the bam map combination, because that's the other one, the Eli Lilly drug, and it's been sort of out of favor too. And the answer is yes, you should take it because that will cover the Delta variant. So some of these concierge practices are running out of Regeneron, and now they're telling the patients, hey, you know what? We have this other one, bam map combination. You could get this. Are they doing the ethically correct thing? And the answer is yes, because their motivation is to cover the Delta variety, which is accomplished with that drug. 
Let's imagine you test positive for COVID. Is it Omicron or is it Delta? Is there a test we can do individually to know which COVID variant we have on a rapid basis? No. It's basically done by departments of health. They take a random sampling of county and they decipher what the percentage is. Another interesting thing, Larry, if you go especially to a lot of concierge practices, you have acute COVID, they will charge for, you know, either giving you the monoclonal antibody because they have it, but they'll also give you medicines like Zithromax, vitamins, they'll give you sometimes infusion of normal saline. But one of the more interesting things that a lot of the places are giving is fluvoxamine. Yeah, I don't know it. Fluvoxamine is an antidepressant, it's an SSRI, and it has been studied, actually positive trials. I believe the dose is something like 100 milligrams three times a day, and it's for 10 days. And I've treated many, many, many patients with COVID. I sort of shy away from it, even though I believe in it and I, and I believe it works. And I've seen anecdotally patients who've been on SSRIs who have not developed severe COVID pneumonia. And I think it's thought provoking. And in years from now, I think it will probably be a treatment for flu and other viruses. That being said, you have to take into account you're putting on a medicine that is three or four times the normal dose for anxiety and depression, and there could be significant side effects. I think it's safer to give a one-time infusion of monoclonal than to be you know, using this fluvoxamine right now. If you are in a third world country or somewhere else, you know, let's say you're going on a trip somewhere, I think it is a reasonable thing to consider uh, taking or having available is a possibility. And you could look up the data. It's fluvoxamine, 100 milligrams TID three times a day for 10 days. As far as Zithromax, there are some studies showing anti-inflammatory properties, but there's no rip-roaring amazing study as with ivermectin and Zithromax. A lot of the concierge practices are using all of them in combination. A number of my friends went on vacation overseas, and many of them are coming down with COVID as soon as they land. Maybe it's a good idea to bring some COVID medicine along. Last time when we spoke, you recommended a Z-Pack. Should we bring a Z-Pack or any other medications with us, especially if we're going to a developing country that does not have easy access to medicines? I don't even know the legality, honestly. Are you allowed to prescribe medicine prophylactically? I don't know. Can you get Z-Pack over the counter? Z-Pack is not over the counter. It's it's a prescribed medicine, but we do give it to you know patients that are going away sometimes, you know, if they if there's a lack of medicine in, in the country that they're going to, that's reasonable. The the legality I don't know about like prescribing, which I haven't, like uh, fluvoxamine, oh, just in case you get COVID, here, here's a hundred TID of fluvoxamine. So that's that's an interesting question. Are you allowed to, to do that? Uh, just like are you allowed to take uh, you know Regeneron with you? You know, you buy it. I would probably take a Z pack and definitely a steroid stash. All right. So what steroid would you bring on your trip? Would you bring that DEXA? I would bring a prednisone. I would bring like 20 milligrams, a 30-day supply just to have available. I think it's reasonable. I would want to have access to that in a third world country. When I was in the hospital uh, with COVID, Ari, you prescribed me zinc, vitamin D, melatonin, and some other drugs. Now, that was a year ago now. What do you think of those drugs now? Zinc actually was studied, and it was a negative trial. Melatonin had some definite antiviral activity, but it also did make the cut. A very good resource for anybody listening. Actually, I'm not, I don't work for them, but the medical letter, the medical letter, they provide free, free of charge. You could see a table. What I like about it is it goes through the evidence of everything that has been out there. Vitamins, zinc, zithromax, fluvoxamine, even the vaccines. They do a great job. And you could be as knowledgeable as Dr. Ari Cement. Yeah, that I don't believe. Let's say you're 55, fully vaccinated with the booster, but I'm still showing some symptoms. What do you recommend that I do next? You should rest assured that you're going to be okay. And by the guidelines, you really don't meet the criteria for the monoclonal. However, in, in a perfect world, like we were a month ago when it wasn't an outbreak, RE Cement would advise you to get the monoclonal, figure out a way to get the monoclonal. But in a pandemic where it's limited resources, 
and you have to go by the guidelines, then you know you, you'll you'll be okay. Let's change the facts. I'm unvaccinated. Unvaccinated, you need to figure out a way to get that monoclonal right away. But you also have a, a different avenue. Right away, you can go on online and go clinical trials. Mm-hmm. Regeneron versus another polyclonal antibody, and you can get it and get paid for it too. Love it. And then double vaccinate with a booster over 65. For the very, very rare occurrence that you could get sick, I would still push for monoclonal anytime just to modify your question. If that guy was under 65 and 40 or 30, even 25, but had a BMI greater than 25 or 30, I would also push for the monoclonal. In other words, if you have any of the risk factors, BMI, diabetes, hypertension, I would push for trying to get the infusion. The benefits far outweigh the risks. We touched on this briefly earlier. Nationwide, the ratio of Delta to Omicron is 25 to 75, but I have a feeling that in New York City and Miami Beach, it might be much different. Do you have a guess what that ratio of Omicron to Delta is in the Omicron hotspots? I think it's probably 80-20. If you're in New York or Miami Beach and you test positive for COVID, does that change your decision on which monoclonal to ask for or to even get it at all? It does, and and I think the the thing that could tell you could sort of tell the difference is the Omicron typically is a sinusitis. And they come in like, you could hear them sound like this, they sound nasal, and I have a little sore throat. That's Omicron. When they have high fevers that are persisting, feeling so weak and tired, can't move, that's what I'm thinking. Uh, you know what? This sounds like the old bad variant. That's the guy that I'm going to try to figure out how we can get them treatment fast. Ari, I end each episode with a note of optimism. What do you have for us this week? The CDC is finally coming through for for everybody and and lowering the amount of time. People will be back in the workforce. People will be more adherent to masks. And uh, I think it's just we're four to six weeks away from being back to normal. Every college kid's been on vacation and everyone's dispersed. And now we're going back to work together. Do you think the return of kids to school and employees back to work will cause a surge in COVID cases in the next couple of weeks? I think the timing was brilliant. I mean, to put this this five-day period, it's going to get through. It, it's just a reality. We're going to have to sort of deal with it. So I think now also people, because it's five days, and it's I think people understand the risks more. And they're more appreciative and they're going to wear the mask. They're going to be more careful. They're going to do things outside. They're going to make more of a conscious effort. The key is that even if you go back to society, you should just be happy that you're back, but wear the mask and be be cognizant of other people. That's the key. If everybody does that, even though the mask question whether or not it's even efficacious, if you have COVID, I would recommend wearing two masks during that time, you know, around other people, just so you don't spread it. Two weeks ago, when Omicron was on the rise, the CDC decided to stop providing hospitals with Regeneron because it didn't work in the lab. The CDC reversed itself, but many people are sick with Delta, where Regeneron is very effective and patients can't get it. What do you make of this public health error? There are people that unfortunately are going to pass away for the lesson that we're going to all learn. Ari Saman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks to Chris and Ari for joining us today. That ends today's session. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes, or you wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify.